our New Testament reading, which is in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 891. John 6, verses 60 through 69. If you are able to, would you please rise for the reading of God's word this morning? Word of the Lord from John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now let us turn to our Old Testament reading. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. We'll actually be going into chapter 5 and end there chapter 44, and in there at verse 5. You find that on your pew Bible on page 603, Isaiah 43 through chapter 44, verse 5. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return from you peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north give up and to the south do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are are blind, yet have eyes. 
who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this? And who shows us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God, and henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. 
Church, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall endure forever. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. In 1773, William Cooper, close confidant of John Newton, was struggling with what physicians would now diagnose as clinical depression and what he himself referred to as crushing, unutterable despair. Throughout his lifelong battle with mental illness and personal tragedy, Cooper had numerous breakdowns. But through all of his breakdowns, remained a believer in the sovereign grace and mercy of God. And frankly, it was likely only that that kept him alive for 69 years. If you know any thing about Cooper, then you will understand that his most well-known hymn is as much ministering to himself as it is to others. Many of his hymns are wonderful for their honesty and their presentation of God as Cooper saw the Lord. Cooper wrote the following hymn, which is familiar to many of you. Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You will have gathered that Cooper was as much of a poet as a hymn writer. What kept Cooper alive through his despair is what God's word in Isaiah 43 presents to us this morning. That regardless of what comes, Jesus is our one great hope. Isaiah 43 through chapter 44 verse 5 is given to Judah as an encouragement. Once again, the context of these servant songs is a coming exile. They have received bad news. It's coming. There's nothing they can do. They have received a diagnosis that the doctor has no treatment for. There's nothing that can be done about what is coming. It is coming. So what are they going to do? I mean, it's reasonable to assume that God is done with them. That God is done with Judah. They're going into exile. Nobody ever comes back from exile to Babylon. It's over for Judah. This is surely what they're thinking. And so the Lord gives them 
through the prophet Isaiah a word. To consider their context in Cooper's own words, the clouds ye so much dread are gathering, and a frowning providence has appeared. However, the Lord speaks so as to teach Judah what Cooper so brilliantly wrote about in his hymn, that the clouds ye so much dread will indeed break with mercy on your head, and that behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. What Judah must come to embrace is that those things that threaten to ruin them will be used of God for his own glory and their ultimate good. That's what they have to come to embrace. That the things right in front of them that will threaten to ruin them will be used for their good and God's ultimate glory. We all know Romans 8.28, don't we? We know what the Bible says. All things work work. For the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. But friends, I think that we sometimes think that that's only for New Testament people. But it's not. That's true for God's people for all time. It's true for Judah in Isaiah 43. All things will work together for their good. Even exile. Let's bring this home this morning as we think about this. Those things that threaten to ruin you. That you are convinced will be your ruin. Will only be used for your good and his glory, church. Even death itself. Even death itself. Is for your good and God's glory. The psalmist says, what can man do to me? The only thing that man can do to you, dear one, is usher you into the presence of unfathomable joy all the quicker. All things. And so as we come to Isaiah 43, this is true for them and it's true for us. And this is true only because of who God is. In the midst of uncertainty, God points his people to himself and more specifically to this servant to come, Jesus Christ. When we as God's people are threatened to react to the world in fear, he reminds us of who he is for us and why we can rest in his sovereign care. He tells us, according to verse 11, I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Besides me there is no Savior. As we look to the text, we see His hand in everything. From the designs laid to save you before there even was a you, to the end of the road, Christ alone will accomplish His work. And so as we look at Isaiah 43, we're going to consider what the Lord says to Israel, but we don't need to stop there. We don't dare need to stop there. Because what God says to Israel is true of you as well. It's true of you as well. 
And the hope of Israel, the hope of Judah, is your hope. For their hope is Jesus Christ. And so, as we consider what the Lord has for us this morning, consider first the following. Consider the exclusivity of Christ in your election and calling. The exclusivity of Christ in your election and calling. To maybe bring it out of the theological language, consider how special it is that God alone is the one who chooses you. Consider that. Why should you hope when it looks like there is no reason to hope? You have cause to hope because the only God there was and is and ever will be has chosen you. That's where we start this morning. From the outset, we are reminded that we are God's, not because we choose him, but because he chose us. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 43, the Lord says, I created you, O Jacob. I formed you, O Israel. I have called you and redeemed you. Beloved, God's people are not his because of some act of our own, but we are his creation. In Isaiah 44, verses 1 and 2, he calls them, Jacob, my servant, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb. God began this work in us, not us. Look at me for a moment, please. Consider that. You did not begin this work. You did not begin it. God began it. God is the one who calls you. God is the one who chooses you. If you have difficulty with that, you're not alone first. I want you to know that you're not alone, but hold on. Hold on. But understand what the text says. It's there in black and white. You can quibble with it all you want, but chose in Hebrew means chose. That's what it means. God chose you. And the New Testament in the book of Ephesians tells us that we are created in Christ Jesus after God's own image. Nothing creates itself. And you don't either. You're created by God who chooses you. And we look at verses 8 and 10 of chapter 44. And it refers there to, to us as those who were previously blind, but now have eyes and deaf who now hear. And in verse 10, it calls us his servant, whom I have chosen. Thus begins a work of God and God alone. God chooses you. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, you are because God has chosen you. I think one of my favorite things I've ever read about this is what Charles Spurgeon says about this. Charles Spurgeon says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. 
And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. That's the heart of it right there. He indeed does look upon his people with a special love. He declares it. He says in our text this morning, I love you. His choosing is a choosing of love. That is our hope. In those dark days, in those days when we don't love ourselves, when we can't find a single thing about ourselves to love, when we can't find a single thing in our lives to truly love, God says, I have chosen you. And I love you. Verses 5 and 6 show us that his choosing isn't narrow either. We think, well, that must mean that God is stingy. No, his choosing goes to all four points of the globe. To the west and to the east to the north and to the south. His choosing is broad. Choosing is broad. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12 says, In him we have t- obtained an inheritance. Listen to what it says. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is precisely the point of Isaiah 43. God is telling his people, you must know that I started this work on my own without your help and I will finish this work on my own without your help because I chose you. I chose you. I told those of you who have trouble with that doctrine, the doctrine of election to hold on. And I wanted you to hold on for this. I've shared this illustration before, but I think it's a helpful illustration. God says he loves you, and God's love is a choosing love. He chooses his people. And I want to go at this by way of an illustration of a man declaring his love for his wife. And I'm going to give you two scenarios Two separate scenarios of a man who is declaring his love for his wife. And I want you to decide which is the better scenario. And so I'm asking you to make a personal decision here. So if you're a guy, is this how I want to tell my wife or my future wife that I love her? Or is this the way? And for you ladies, I want you to think, is this the way I want my husband or my future husband or whatever? I I want him to to show me this way or this way. I want you to make a choice between these two scenarios. So here we go. Scenario number one of a husband declaring his love for his wife. The husband, seeking to explain his love and affection for his wife, tells her that he indeed loves her. He tells her that he loves all women generally, finding them each uniquely important and special in their own way, but that he married her because she said yes. He explains to her that he could have married the neighbor just as well had she said yes, 
But she didn't say yes, and so here he is. And so that is scenario number one. A general non-electing love. He's, he's going to be single really soon, Jim. <laughs> Story number two. Here the husband tells his wife that there were times before he even met her that he thought of her. In fact, he had even prayed for her. He still does and will continue to do unfailingly. He tells her that it wasn't even love at first sight because he loved her even before he met her. And now that he has met her and made her his own, that she completes his joy. He tells her that his love for her is infinite and he means it. He tells her that his love for her is unconditional and he means it. And he tells her that he loves her just as much when she is at her very worst and he means it. Which husband do you want? We want number two. We want to be husband number two. You want husband number two. So why then when it comes to the doctrine of God? Why then when it comes to your picture of the love of Jesus do you choose number one? The Bible tells us he loves us like the second husband. The Bible tells us that he loves us even before there was an us. In love, Ephesians says, in love he predestined. Ephesians 1 also says that he does that from before the foundation of the world. He loved you even before there was a you. He has prayed for you. He prays for you now. And he will continue to pray for you. He loves you even at your very worst. When I think about my worst, I'm astounded. I'm astounded that he would love me there. What's the hope of God's people? The hope of God's people is that the one true God has called me, has called you, he's chosen you, and he's called you. Praise the Lord. But as he elects you and he calls you, he calls you for a purpose. He calls you to redeem you. And so that's where we move next. The exclusivity of Christ in your redemption. Beloved, you are redeemed because of Christ alone. Just as you are elected and called because of Christ alone, you are redeemed because of Christ alone. To drive this point home, no less than four times in chapter 43 are we told that he alone is our Savior and our God. Four times. He says it over and over and over and over again. I am the Lord. I am your God. I am your Redeemer. In verse 2, we are told that nothing that comes against us will prevail. Why? Because of what he says in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
In this prophecy given for the reassurance of his people, he sets out by reminding them of who he is. God is their Savior. But more than that, they aren't to rely upon themselves for redemption. He is their Savior. In verse 11, he reminds them again, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Now remember the context. These people are not going to live a perfect life. These people will not be pain-free. They will not avoid bad things. God has told them bad things are on the horizon. And as he tells them that, he reminds them, I, I am the Lord, your God, your Savior. It's as if the Lord is saying, don't forget, you're not in this position yet. You've yet to receive the diagnosis. You've yet to receive the heartbreak. But when you do receive that diagnosis and that heartbreak, do not forget, I, I am the Lord your God, your Savior. Don't forget that. Why is it important? I don't know if you were paying any attention to this. But as we read the text, in verse 2, the Lord has told them, I have formed you. He tells them in verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. But what does he say in verse 2? There at the end of verse 2, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I, I am the Lord your God, your Savior. And he says, you're going to need that. You're going to need to remember that. What happens in Daniel chapter 3? You know what the context of Daniel chapter 3 is? Exile. What, what's going on in Daniel chapter 3? Where is Judah? They're in Babylon. And it seems like Three guys had good papas and mamas who taught them the Bible. They had a good father and a good mother who sat them down and said, Listen, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, listen to this. God has said this. When you walk through the flames, they will not hurt you. And this is why he said it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is why he said it. He said, For I, I am the Lord your God, your Savior. That's why. Don't forget that, boys. Don't forget it. Nebuchadnezzar takes the throne. Nebuchadnezzar demands worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know that Nebuchadnezzar is no Savior. He is no Lord. He is no God. And so they're brought before him. It says in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Friends, they knew what you and I must never forget. 
He is our God. He is our Savior. And they walked out of the fire. Why did they walk out? How could they walk out? Because they knew that they had one God, one Redeemer. In verse 14, the Lord continues. He says that he is their Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. In verse 15, he is their Creator King. And we spoke of this last week, that God does not create for judgment. God does not create for judgment, but to redeem them. God gets glory in redemption. But how is he going to redeem sinners who are helpless to save themselves? Verse 25, once again, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So what do we say? We said you don't call and you don't elect yourself. God does that. And we've just said that God does the redeeming as well. You cannot blot out your own sins. You cannot redeem yourself. Take note, church, for those, or rather for whose sake he blots out our transgressions. Take note of that. Verse 25 again. Take note of this. I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. For whose sake does he blot out transgressions? For whose sake does he erase sin? For whose sake does he atone for sin? For his sake. For his sake. Why does that matter? Well, friend, if there's anything I beg you not to forget, it is this. Your redemption is for Jesus' sake. For his glory. Your redemption is for Jesus' sake. For his glory. It says it right there. For my sake, he says it. Why do I want you to remember? Why is that so critically important? Friends, it's important because his glory will not be diminished through the loss of a single one. He does it for his sake. If he did it for your sake, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. You don't bring him anything. You don't convince him of anything, your goodness, your righteousness. He does it for his sake. For his glory. Paul writes of this very thing in Romans 9. Paul said, in the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient With those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this. Listen, he does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy. Who were prepared in advance for glory. And so Paul there is saying the very same thing. Why does God save Judah? Why will he bring them back out of exile? Is it because that they, they just had this wonderful religious experience in Babylon? They figured it all out and became perfect and convinced God to redeem them? Of course not. We know that's not the case. 
God does it for his own glory. So that the world can say that God is a long-suffering God. He is a God who saves sinners. So why does God save you? Does God save you because of all the Bible passages that you've memorized? Because you're always here. Because you were baptized as a covenant child or even as an adult. Because you try your very best to live a wholesome, healthy Christian life. You know the answer to that. God doesn't save you because of what you do. He saves you because of who he is. He saves you for his glory. So that you can be a trophy of his grace. So that your testimony might be the very same testimony that Israel's testimony was in Deuteronomy 6 when the parents of the Exodus were called to tell their children there was a day when I was a slave. But God redeemed me. God brought me out. God bought me from the slave market of sin and made me his own. For his glory. Finally, consider the exclusivity of Christ in your perseverance. Your calling and your election is because of Jesus Christ alone. Your redemption, the fact that you are saved and born again, is because of Jesus Christ alone. And the fact that you will endure to the end is because of Jesus Christ alone. <laughs> because of Christ alone. Verses 16 through 21 tell us how the Lord will help his people persevere to the end. There it says, he will make a way in the sea, a path in mighty waters. There's distance between you and I as 21st century Gentiles from what the Lord is saying here. But there wasn't for the Jews reading this text and receiving this prophecy. Many waters meant something to them. It meant judgment. Water meant judgment. They know how God decided to judge the earth on the days of Noah with a flood. They know what happened to Jonah when Jonah was disobedient to the Lord and had to be thrown into the sea and saved only by God's providence in the belly of a great fish. They remember that. They remember when God was desiring to judge the Egyptians for their wickedness in enslaving God's people in closing the sea upon the Egyptians. Water's judgment. And God says to them, I will make a way in the sea. I will make a path in mighty waters. He's telling them, you are going into exile because of judgment, but I've made a path because I always make a way for my people through the waters of judgment, and I will again. We see water being important again. Water not only is judgment, but of course for these folks, it is life as well. And so... We remember that he provided water in the Exodus. And so in verse, 10, verse 19, he says that he will make rivers in the desert. God will make a way. He will care for his people 
through this time of judgment. And verse 18 tells us that this will be a new thing. A new thing. What is that about? He calls them to remember the old. But then says, but I'm doing a new thing. Here's what this means. Though it will be like the old, it will be new. Like the old, God's people once again will be brought through judgment to the promised land. But being new this time, it won't be to Jerusalem, but to the new Jerusalem. Because it is unlike the old, it won't be to a promised land that his people will have to fortify. Like the old, he will free his people from exile in Babylon. But because it is new, the true exile comes when Jesus, the archagos, the pathfinder, the captain of our salvation, goes on to defeat our greatest enemy, death on the cross, and opens the door to our everlasting home, freeing us from the exile. That we are in right now. He's going to do something new. But even getting there is all about him. Chapter 44 verse 3. The Lord tells us that days will come. When the Lord says I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring. And the blessing upon your descendants. And it's the spirit of Christ that brings us all the way home. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Listen to what it says. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is how you will get there. God puts His Spirit in you, sealing you. And the Scripture says that is your inheritance until you come into possession of it. You will not be lost. You cannot be lost. Why? Because of what God does for you. So what's the application? Three points of application. What do you do with this now, today? The first thing that you and I must do is to embrace your election. Embrace your election. Our confession tells us that, quote, the effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein. Embrace that. Embrace it. Draw it as close to your heart as you can. Friends, I understand this is a doctrine that will wound your self-confidence. It will devastate your pride. It will destroy your self-righteousness. Because you are a sinner like the rest of us. 
You will not enjoy it at first. But when you let go of all those fantasies of self-salvation and embrace the fact that your election is unconditional, you will be set free to rest in the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Embrace that. Embrace it. It doesn't have to taste good. It doesn't have to feel warm and cozy to be good. It will wound you. It will destroy your pride. But when you need to know the love of God, it will bring you comfort like no other. To remember that you were chosen because of who he is. You are kept because of who he is. You are brought home because of who he is. Because he loves you. Why? You can think of 10,000 reasons why not. Why? Because he does. Because he has chosen to. Embrace your election. Number two. Secondly, remember that your salvation rests in the passion of God for his own glory. Remember that your salvation rests in the passion of God for his own glory. Listen, church. If he loses you, Christ cannot bear his crown of glory. If he loses you, then Christ will have proven to be an insufficient Savior, having accomplished only part of the work. There's a word for that. It's called blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Jesus Christ is not an insufficient Savior. Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. He's an all-sufficient Savior. If He loses you, He cannot be who He says He is. You are born again and kept and will be in heaven because of the passion of God for His very own glory. Jesus says, in a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, Jesus says, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. John 14, 19 through 20. For you to be lost, the Son must fall from the hand of the Father and you must fall from the hand of the Son. It's not going to happen. For the Son to fall from the hand of the Father would put the cosmos into chaos. Would be the end of all things. It cannot be. You are secure in Christ. In Christ alone. Finally, Last point of application is to live the life you most deeply long for. Leave your exile and bondage. Let go of your idols and launch out into his mercy. Friends, the life you desire is found in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't deserve it. You can't control it. And you will never lose it. It is poured out upon you through Jesus Christ alone. 
A.W. Tozer wrote, The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he sees them go, one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one God all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. Even in exile, even in death, we have him, and he has us. For he calls you, he redeems you, and in the end he will bring you all the way home. Oh, Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts to bend us to the truth. You would bend the hearts of sinners to embrace the truth of the gospel that they have just heard. That you would bend the hearts of your people away from our pride and our idolatrous feelings for our own self-confidence and self-worth to see that in Christ is everything and that we can trust you because you are the one who made us. You are the one who chose us. You are the one who's called us. You are the one who redeems us. You are the one who brings us all the way to our everlasting rest in the glorious presence of Christ our King. Oh God, knit this truth upon the walls of our hearts that we like your servants Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would remember what you say. I, I am the Lord your God. And besides me, there is no Savior. Amen.